Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Paul Friedman. I teach history at Yale University, and my latest book is called American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. For more cookery by the book, you can follow me on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share it with a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy cookery by the book. Now on with the show. I'm thrilled to have you back on my podcast to chat about this extraordinary follow-up to 10 Restaurants That Changed America. And before we start, I have to tell you that after I chatted with you about 10 restaurants, we were driving our son to sleepaway camp, and I stopped at Bookbinders in Philadelphia to get the Terrapin Soup just to see what it was about. So I was like, this is for Paul, the Terrapin Soup. And what was your verdict? Oh, the broth was amazing, but it's weird eating turtle, I guess, because I'm not from the 1800s. But (laughs) Right, right. But you're not like faced with, uh, um, you know, a turtle steak or something like that. So it's not too intimidating, I hope. I once had Terrapin the way it was served in the 19th century when it was the height of elegance in America at a club in Wilmington, Delaware, and it was in a kind of cream and sherry sauce. And here it wasn't steaks either, but little pieces of terrapin meat, which is sort of pink. And it was absolutely delicious, I have to say. I saw the point of the enthusiasm of two centuries ago. So there's so much in this new book as you trace the entire journey of American food. Question number one, drumroll please, does American cuisine exist? It does. It does in a kind of special sense. Because when we say cuisine and apply it to things like Italy or India, there are a number of dishes that we expect. So if you were told that you're going to go to an Italian restaurant, you'd be pretty sure that some pasta dishes would be on the menu. An Indian restaurant in the United States, there would be curries, even if that's not exactly an authentic reproduction of what people eat in India. This is a set of dishes that meets an expectation of a particular cuisine. For the United States, you don't have that. So my argument is that cuisine here means three things. One is an inheritance of certain regional dishes. The second is an early and fierce infatuation with processed food. And the third is a love of variety. So in the introduction you wrote, as far back as the early 19th century, European travelers were appalled at how quickly Americans wolfed down their food. 10 minutes for breakfast, 20 for other meals, according to one haughty British visitor in 1820. You know, the first thing I thought about when I read that were the American farmers who days were jam-packed with chores. Um, And they didn't have much time for dining unless it was Sunday after church. What is your take on that observation from 1820? Uh, I think that these travelers were in cities and they were observing people who were more affluent. I mean, they're farmers all over the world. In the early 19th century, the vast majority of people in Europe, Britain, anywhere would have been farmers. So they're under the same constraints. It's people who have some choice and who choose to get the meal over in a hurry. 
the other thing the Europeans said was that Americans don't like to talk. They don't see the meal as an opportunity for conversation. And this is still true today in the sense that many people eat alone, even in families. Everybody has their different schedule. People eat with their phone on the table, looking at their phone. Many people regard meals particularly, but not exclusively lunch, as a kind of necessary waste of time that they multitask and do other stuff during it. There was a survey of attitudes in France versus the United States. And it really shows that in France, the meal is a small pleasure that banishes other preoccupations. And that people who have to get something and kind of like uh, eat it at their desk because they're very busy will say they haven't had lunch, even if they had enough calories. Because lunch is an actual meal consumed in some kind of fashion that is not part of the rest of the day. That's in France, at least. What's American culinary internationalism? That's the kind of syndrome where you say, oh, I don't want to have lunch at a Thai restaurant because I had Thai food yesterday for dinner. It is the availability of a variety of cuisines and the feeling that you want to experiment among them. This is now international uh, in uh, Barcelona, where I do a lot of my work as a medieval historian. You now can get sushi, panini, pizzas, hamburgers, the whole gamut of bubble tea, international kinds of foods. But this is really recent. Uh, For most of my 40 years as a professor going to Barcelona, you know, they just had the food of uh, Catalonia or Spain or the Mediterranean. So Americans, by contrast, started experimenting with foreign foods, with the food of immigrants, really as far back as the 1880s, when chop suey and Italian dishes first became popular among people who were, of course, not just Italian or Chinese. Do you miss that in Barcelona, having so much variety and not really the quote-unquote traditional things? It depends how long I'm there. Um, The easy answer is no, because, first of all, the repertoire of the local food is pretty extensive, And secondly, the quality is so good. So one of the problems with variety is that it distracts from actual quality. I will say that this summer I was in China for three weeks. There, the variety is infinite. I mean, I seldom have the same dish, even though we had like 20 or 25 dishes per meal. Uh, On the other hand, after a couple of weeks, I really did start to miss what I was accustomed to. Not so much American food in the narrow sense of, say, burgers or steaks, but um, food that was not Chinese. I, I admired it. It was marvelous, but it was kind of overwhelming. Let's talk about the fascinating 1796 cookbook, American Cookery by Amelia Simmons. Can you describe this cookbook? Like many cookbooks, it, um, let's say, uses the legacy of the past in order to avoid saying it's uh, a plagiarized affair. It is based a lot on English cookbooks, but it has a certain number of, um, you know, American characteristics. I, I sort of dismiss Simmons as really not a very American 
but it's mostly taken from other. Deliberately, it says new receipts adapted to the American mode of cooking is the Hannah Glass Art of Cookery uh, Made Plain and Easy, the U.S. edition of this. I love that you have a whole chapter about community cookbooks. And um, you talk about how these reflect time and class, and you wrote that they offer a representation of actually what was being cooked when it was published. When did they first appear? Uh, around the Civil War. So they're cookbooks of um, recipes by ladies, as they put it, uh, of various communities uh, submitted to form a, a volume. So they're like favorite recipes of Zanesville, Ohio, or something like that. And they uh, were to raise money for uh, veterans or wounded soldiers. And after the Civil War, they keep often that charitable or institutional purpose. So I think it was kind of like Amelia Simmons. Um, Something I learned was that the community cookbooks often ripped off existing published recipes. Yes, yes. Or they were adaptations, let's say, of recipes often that were pretty widely circulated in women's magazines and in other cookbooks. If you consider what they're doing, I had originally thought that such an enterprise would be a wonderful reflection of regional cuisine, that a community cookbook in Boise, Idaho or Waco, Texas or Jacksonville, Florida, would show you the cuisine of the region. But they really don't because the women of these communities want to be up to date and modern. They don't want to be rustic, you know, rural and have recipes for random animals that you could get in the countryside. (laughs) They want to have, you know, uh, if jello salad is the thing, or if green goddess salad dressing is the thing. Uh, And they, you know, they want to have something that's up to date. They also want to have something that's not too difficult for other people to make. The thing you have to balance if you're thinking of what recipe are you going to contribute is, if it's too difficult, if it calls for esoteric ingredients, then you're kind of breaking the curve. You're spoiling it and you're, you're a show off. What you want is something that's convenient, not too expensive, uh, delicious by whatever measurement that means. So you get then a very good view, as you said, of time and of class. You don't get such a good view of where this is taking place, of regional cuisine. So was there ever a vibrant set of regional cuisines in America? There was, um, but it starts to be undermined much earlier than anywhere else in the world because of the development of canned, powdered, processed, and later on frozen foods, which seduced American cooks, it's fair to say, beginning pretty shortly after the Civil War. When it came to desserts until the late 1950s, baking from scratch was expected. I feel like we've come full circle on this, don't you think? I do. Um, You know, in, in this, as in many other things, the convenience products of the past, which you find in the middle aisles of the typical supermarket, the way the typical supermarket is set up is to make sure that you've got to go through everything and to look at everything. So the middle aisles are suffering. Uh, Just in today's Wall Street Journal, there's all sorts of stuff about Campbell's soup, still the soup part of it. 
despite their proclaimed insistence on better quality. People, people aren't, may, aren't using canned soups as much. They're not using cake mixes as much. That doesn't mean that convenience products are at an end. In fact, uh, if you expand the definition of convenience to include takeout or delivery or uh, meal kits, we're using them more than ever. So that in the 1950s, however different the food was from our taste, however infatuated they were with convenience products, they did almost all their cooking at home, whereas we spend more money dining out or on meals that other people have prepared than we do cooking at home. While what we eat is radically cheaper than the past, this stat blew my mind. In 1900, more than 40% of an average family's income was spent on food. And in 2016, it was 12.6%. How come? This is the best argument for technology and for the kind of uh, processed food and national distribution networks that you can devise. The fact that we don't have to spend nearly half of our income just to feed ourselves. That's an historic change. That is all of the rest of human history, except for a tiny fragment of an elite, an aristocracy. People had to uh, expend a huge amount of effort and money just to feed themselves. So that, you know, the reason for this change and the diminution of how much as a percentage of what we earn we have to spend is because of better agricultural yield, better fertilizers, better transport, the ability to freeze powder or, you know, to, to preserve food uh, more quickly and the uh, industrialization and centralization of the food supply. That doesn't mean that that comes uh, free of adverse consequences, environmental consequences, health consequences. But for many people, you could argue very easily that the bottom line is that the average person is spending radically less on food and therefore has much more money to spend on phones, cars, houses, clothes, travel, music, whatever. The Settlement Cookbook was first published in 1903, and the subtitle was The Way to a Man's Heart. Then a Mademoiselle article from 1990 was entitled Refriger Dating, Putting Guy Food in the Fridge. Talk a little bit about getting a man with food and the perfect wife. Well, the uh, tradition was that uh, the way to a man's heart was through his stomach. And that is part of a kind of eternal argument about what, you know, what are men looking for in women and addressed to women by things like that cookbook, but with more elaboration by things like women's magazines articles, magazines like Mademoiselle, which was by its very title directed to uh, an adult but unmarried woman. But the assumption of Mademoiselle's history was that it was addressed to an unmarried woman who wants to be married real soon. So, yes, a lot of these involve strategies to get men in the early 20th century by being a good cook. In the later 20th century, really beginning in the 50s, 
by seeming to be a good cook, because you actually don't want to spend a whole lot of time cooking because the contradictory advice or the, let's say, compatible advice, complementary advice of these magazines is, yes, men want you to be a good cook, but they don't want you to be a drudge. They want you to be a good companion. They want you to be sexy. They want you to be fun. So what uh, uh, they're trying to navigate in the late 20th century especially is the woman as um, good sport and the woman as a good provider of meals. And that's, uh, um, that's tricky. That's a let lot. Alone, yes, and let alone the whole idea of subordination implicit in the notion that it is you, the uh, woman, who has to please the man. It also assumes that the man is kind of a something of an automaton. He responds to good meals. Uh, he responds to sexual allure. Uh, he doesn't do a whole lot of thinking or strategizing about it. <laughs> you know, my mom, she's passed away, but she was born in 1929 and she drilled it in my head. Like, you should always cook Bob a meal. I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> Right, right. So, I mean, you know what, what I'm talking about. I think that the chapter on women and food and, you know, food and gender and the way cookbooks address women uh, is alien to what many young people think. When I teach this material to my students at, at Yale, uh, they're amused, but the, you know, it's like I was describing the Crusades in the Middle Ages or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, I saw this on Game of Thrones, but 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 uh, it doesn't exactly speak to my experience. Was your mom saying that otherwise he's going to be discontent, or yes. that? Um, yeah. So a lot of this uh, <laughs> is the lore of. Uh, older women addressing younger women or moms addressing daughters is that, you know, you may think that, um, you know, your convenience or your um, attractiveness is uh, more important than providing a good meal. But so the, the extreme, as you will have seen in my book, is someone who wrote to Betty Crocker, the General Mills icon, you know, who accepted mail and responded to it. So they had various people who had the job of responding as Betty Crocker. I mean, everybody knew she was a fictional character, but nevertheless, that was their advice kind of uh, correspondence. And one woman wrote in in the 1920s and said that um, uh, I make vanilla cake uh, because I like it. Uh, my husband prefers fudge cake. And my neighbor, I noticed, has made fudge cake a couple times. Is she trying to steal my husband? <laughs> And here again, it assumes that the guy is just like, you know, something that can be directed by remote control. Oh, fudge cake. I'm going to go. I'm for going it. next door. I'm going next door. See ya. <laughs> the whole situation comedy TV era was predicated on the notion that the woman actually thinks about stuff and the man just kind of like, goes to work, comes home, eats his meal, watches TV, uh, says, uh, did you have a good day? And and that's about all he's good for. Gosh, we've come a long way. <laughs> Maybe. So I, uh, you know, do include this uh, New York Times tongue-in-cheek, to be sure, piece of a few years ago about uh, advising women 
to, or at least saying that women themselves spontaneously on first or at least early dates, dinners with guys they've just met, will order steak in order to show that they're not a food faddist, that they're not too health conscious, that they're not going to insist that uh, he change his diet, that he start eating kale or quinoa or something like that, because that's what he fears. So again, she shows she's a good sport by ordering the steak. In the book, you wrote, the difficulty of defining American cuisine makes it hard to identify a typical American restaurant serving typical American food. Talk a little bit about the term ethnic in terms of restaurants. Well, ethnic is not a popular word for the good reason that it implies that that's the foreign or the strange and that there's a kind of normal or normative, uh, let's say, generic white person's American cuisine or restaurant. So I use the word ethnic nonetheless in the book because that foreignness or that exoticness is the appeal of such restaurants. And because the fact that you patronize such restaurants does not make you necessarily more tolerant or more inclusive. It's perfectly possible to have a hard or paranoid attitude towards immigration and eat at Mexican restaurants all the time. There are people in many states uh, who are doing this even as we speak. (laughs) So so true. The ethnic, though, uh, the ethnic restaurant as a category, you can really see this as an American phenomenon if you compare, say, a guidebook to New York restaurants from the 1960s, when the New York Times in particular started publishing its series of guidebooks, and the Guide Michelin for France. The New York guidebooks divide the book into categories. Some of the categories may just be things like steakhouses or, uh, you know, elegant restaurants, but most of them are Chinese, Indian, Italian, and so forth. They're divided by, um, you know, international country or ethnicity. In Paris, in the 1965 Guide Michelin, I bothered to count the restaurants. Uh, I can't remember now, but it's something like 300 and three, roughly 300 restaurants are listed for the Paris Guide Michelin 1965, of which only half a dozen are not French. There's like two Chinese restaurants, a Vietnamese restaurant. Basically, dining out in France might mean great variety of regions, for example, an an Alsatian restaurant, an Occitan restaurant, a Provençal restaurant, but they're all within France. It's interesting that you wrote Jonathan Gold preferred the term traditional. Yes, because I, I don't, I don't uh, agree. Because traditional, like if you go to Louisiana, traditional uh, means uh, Cajun or Creole, according to some uh, old uh, old tradition. So traditional can mean uh, anything. If I had to choose a word, I'd say maybe international. But the problem with that is that if you look at the, and this gets back to your earlier question, what is a typical American restaurant? If you go to a typical American restaurant, uh, uh, often it has pasta dishes on it. It has crudo or um, sashimi of some sort, or it has, you know, uh, uh, empanadas or small plates like tapas. It could have all sorts of foreign influenced and unacknowledged elements. 
You said um, that diversity actually blurs the culinary authenticity. For example, chicken fajitas in Vermont. Right. And you get these things like in guidebooks where they have pecan pie as a specialty of Vermont or uh, Iowa or all sorts of places that are outside the South, which is what people normally think of as pecan pie's natural home. But this is genuine. You, you have chicken fajitas uh, everywhere. The, the contrast that I try to draw uh, may be most obvious in uh, an anecdote about an experience I had in Italy, where you have the reverse kind of fanatical devotion to local and regional identity. So the meal I had in Bologna uh, with a professor of medieval history and her husband. So I'd been invited to give a talk at the University of Bologna. They took me out to dinner. Bologna is a famous food capital of Italy. And one of their specialties is tortellini. So we had tortellini at this restaurant. And without a doubt, these were the best tortellini I've ever had. And it was obvious. And my host's husband said, you know, in other places in Italy, other towns, they make tortellini with different fillings like spinach or cheese. Um, and these were actually meat tortellini. And I asked the normal American question, which was, oh, do you ever get tired of meat tortellini and just, you know, I have cheese tortellini instead just for variety? He looked yeah. at me like I was crazy, like I suggested putting maple syrup on red snapper. Uh, he said, no, no, in Bologna, we're in Bologna. In Bologna, we eat meat tortellini. And, and it turns out that the blend of what kind of meat is in the tortellini is fixed also. It's very different from Modena, where they also eat meat tortellini. And Modena is maybe 70 miles away. But there's a different kind. You know, there's more prosciutto or more mortadella or, uh, you know, whatever the difference is. And so it's not as if people are competing to see what kind of tortellini you can come up with. In America, you can go to the supermarket and buy 10 different kinds of tortellini, no problem. Pumpkin squash tortellini, porcini mushroom tortellini, sun-dried tomato tortellini. But they're not as good. So here, the emphasis is on a very narrow dossier of variation but on a fanatical attention to making it as good as possible. That is something that we've started to do again. And it's something where you see in things that people don't cook at home. So um, I teach in uh, New Haven, a city famous for pizza. And so people really have an idea of how pizza is supposed to be made. Or uh, you get this with barbecue. Uh, in the South. In North Carolina, they're not going to say, oh, you know, maybe I'll have some Texas barbecue just just, just uh, uh, for variety, you know, smoked, uh, smoked beef rather than uh, that kind of vinegary shredded pork that uh, they go for. But apart from such exceptions, the American tendency has been to prefer variety to intrinsic quality. In Chapter 9, you wrote about how the 1970s marked the total eclipse of regional cuisine. And I would love, these are two people who I love, I would love for you to talk about Jane and Michael Stern. So actually, uh, I, I just uh, published an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal 
that is in their series each weekend. They have five best books or most important books in various topics. So, you know, it might be in uh, warfare or the five best books on sleep. And mine was uh, the one they assigned me was on American food. And I mentioned the Stearns Road Food Guide, which has gone through 10 editions, I believe. The first was in 1978. So, uh, yeah, Jane and Michael Stern in the 1970s set out to find restaurants, not so much of regional authenticity, but simply places where they didn't use frozen food, where they made their own pies, where they made their own chili, where they didn't just dump a Campbell's soup thing into an institutional pot, uh, but actually made their own soup. So it's not intended originally as a guide to regional specialties as just to rescue the traveler from the necessity of depending on uh, fast food. And it's very dear to my heart personally because I taught at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee in the 1980s and traveled a lot to New York uh, because my, my wife lived in New York City, as did my parents. And so going from Nashville to New York, I depended on the Stearns Guide to find barbecue places, for example, or just, you know, lunch counter kind of places that had, um, you know, that had pot roast that they'd actually made in their kitchen rather than some kind of uh, food delivery service that they clawed out. So uh, pre-GPS, finding some of these places was really hard. But it certainly was worth it. Yeah, that's what I thought about with them. They didn't have Google Maps. You could see them sitting there with the big map splayed out in front of them, driving. They're so good. There's a de-skilling, you know. Um, it did take, there was a place called the Ridge, Ridgewood Barbecue, one of the best barbecue places in the East. And it's in um, uh, eastern Tennessee, very near the Virginia uh, and Kentucky borders and in a place called Bluff City. And I would go to that maybe once a year. And that was just enough time to forget how to get off the highway and find <laughs> place. But, you know, I actually knew how to read a map, a skill that I am slowly losing. So on page 281, you have a list of food fads and fashions from the late 19th to early 21st centuries. In the 1980s section, you included ranch dressing invented by Steve Henson, who marketed it as Hidden Valley Ranch. I didn't realize ranch dressing is a relatively new thing. I think this is true of so many of these. and I'm glad you asked me about that list because that's my very favorite thing in here. We think that a lot of dishes just uh, have gone back uh, since, have been around since time immemorial. I mean, some of them, it's not that they were invented in the way that a ranch dressing, really, you can point to a date when it was invented, but say quiche. I mean, quiche Lorraine, you could get at French restaurants before the 1970s, but it completely takes over certain kinds of entertaining and cookbooks in the 1970s. Uh, squid and linguine was available in Italy, but unknown in the United States uh, un until the 1980s. So I'm fascinated by the way in which things that are pretty new turn out to be uh, 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 regarded or uh, get dressed up 
as age-old things. Key lime pie, for example, uh, people think it goes back to the origins of Florida, the first hardy um, settlers in the Florida Keys. But in fact, it's based on a, a Borden's uh, condensed milk recipe from the um, the end of the 1940s. What? Yeah, I know. Uh, disappointing in a way. But originally it was for some kind of icebox um, you know, quick lemon pie, and then some clever person thought of applying it to these admittedly regional key limes. But the actual recipe, it's not as if people in 1900, you know, when uh, Key West was first developed as a resort, were tucking into key lime pie. They had no idea of what it was. Now to my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. What is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? The choice is narrow. I would say my all-time favorite cookbook is Pierre Freyne's 60-Minute Gourmet. Yes. So on the one hand, it's amusing because its idea, and it dates from, what, about 1980? Late 70s, early 80s, and then was followed up by more 60-Minute Gourmet. So on the one hand, the notion that 60 minutes is fast is now amusing. So for Pierre Freyne, a a, uh, French-trained master chef, nobody could could dream of wanting to produce a meal in in less than 60 minutes. Less than 60 minutes, you you might as well well, uh, uh, put something in the microwave from his point of view. But uh, it, it is actually exactly what it says it is. These are wonderful meals. Uh, they're easy. They're easy in the sort of Julia Child sense. Of course, uh, like everybody else, I admire her because all you have to do is follow the instructions. The instructions may be a little bit extensive. They're not as extensive as Julia Child's recipes. Uh, but but the, each step is is pretty simple, and it produces lovely meals. Uh, there are a lot of cream sauces. There's a lot of stuff with scallops. Uh, uh, my wife, uh, when we were just married, made fun of these recipes and of my producing meals based on them uh, by saying, well, what'll it be today, scallops or scallop substitutes? <laughs> but I'd, I'd say that my, my second choice, I mean, you didn't ask me for a second choice, but my second choice is called Cucina Fresca point of it is that it's Italian food, but it's food that's uh, to be served at room temperature, which allows you to make it uh, in advance so that you can greet and entertain your guests without frantically checking things on the stove. The guys at Kitchen Arts and Letters, you know, here in the city, mm-hmm. that's one of their favorite cookbooks. Oh, I didn't know that. That's that's good to know. Uh, I uh, That also, my copy is... Uh, it is in lovingly cherished bad shape because it's been used so much. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Uh, I'm at Mornay, PHF, Mornay like the sauce, M-O-R-N-A-Y, PHF on Twitter. Uh, and um, I uh, have a, a website uh, that's available through the Yale History Department. So if you Google Yale, university history, you'll see under faculty, my name and my site. And now to the very last line of American cuisine. It's in the what's in and what's out section. Okay, here goes. Microgreens. It has been discovered that they have no flavor. Thank As in what's out. you. 
<laughs> Amen. I've always hated microgreens. Yeah. Well, you know, I've developed more uh, dislikes or phobias as I've gotten older, which may be because I started out pretty uh, eclectic and ecumenical. But um, if I may mention another pet peeve, it's wraps. And uh, this is brought up by we have a lot of candidates for jobs in our department this semester. And the lunches so often served at their talks to accompany their talks. You know, a candidate has to give a job talk based on their research uh, are wraps. And you know, I go to these these this free food is set out and I don't like any of it. But they see you coming. Well, uh, people will say other things like, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, you choose the restaurant. I wouldn't dare choose the restaurant uh, uh, for a meal with you as if I have some real uh, uh, expertise in New Haven restaurants that they don't. Or as if I'm someone who can't stand to eat an ordinary meal, which is totally untrue. I, I, I am not uh, in my own picture of myself a foodie, a food fanatic a gourmet, a gastronome. I just happen to be interested in food. That'll be your next book. It'll be entitled, I Like Ordinary Meals. Right. No kidding. (laughs) So thanks for writing yet another thought-provoking book. I could talk to you for hours. And thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you for having me, Susie. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.